I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Do children and adults learn how to listen differently? In this episode, Laura Hargrave shares what she has learned and what she is doing to help young children learn how to listen. She is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist with extensive leadership experience in the rehabilitation and healthcare field. She has also worked in various public school settings. Even though she noticed the importance of listening in all of her roles, she also realized that there is very little educational support to help younger students learn how to listen. This sparked Laura's passion, and she wanted to understand how do children learn how to listen, and what can we do to support better listening in schools. In this episode, she'll share stories about what she has discovered and how this can help both students and teachers thrive in the classroom. Enjoy listening in. Adults believe that kids listen the way adults do. But as I was observing children, they really don't. They use different approaches. They use different filters, if you want to call them that, as to how they listen to things and how they acquire those skills. And when you look at the education that can be found around listening, we have a lot of education for high school kids, college students for business leaders and in the business world. But none of that is geared towards kids. And when we try to apply those same lessons to children, the little kids, they are not able to take the benefit away from those things because their approach is so different. Tell me a little bit more about this different approach. You said that children listen differently, that they have different filters. Can you tell me more about that? Children listen more holistically. As we mature and grow, we put filters in place. We learn to monitor how we present information, what we do with our face, what we do with our body. So we match it to the message we want to communicate. Kids are more open. So as an adult, if I'm talking to you, I might look at your facial features and listen to your tone of voice with the message and take the words and create what I understand to be heard. Well, a child, when we're talking to them, they're paying attention not only to what you're doing with your face, but what you're doing with your body, and whether or not you're actually attentive to them as the child. And when all those factors don't line up to create a cohesive whole, the kids lose the message, and it makes it harder for them to listen. So if we're telling a child they need to pay attention to us, for example, as a teacher, a teacher says, okay, all eyes on me, you have to pay attention to me. 
but the teacher is never actually looking out at her students. She's only focused, for instance, what's on the board. The child gets a splintered message. So while they're hearing, yeah, I want your eyes on me, they don't know what exactly they're supposed to pay attention to, what they're listening for, because the message isn't cohesive. Or if you're saying you're really happy with a child, they did something really amazing and really great, but your body is tense and you're frowning or you're paying attention to something else at the same time, that breaks that message up for them and they don't hear the positives that are there. They get very confused by that message because you're saying one thing, but your body and your approach is radiating a different message. And in the in our current world where a teacher might be trying to give somebody a positive, but at the same time, she's stressing out because maybe, you know, the other guy over here isn't quite paying attention. So she's really trying to do two or three things at a time. Her body message isn't going to be cohesive for the student, And it confuses the students and kids who, and every child looks at it a little differently. So some kids can pick up on why it's splintered and be okay with that. And some kids can't. And it's the kids who can't that have the hardest time really being attentive in a school setting or in a group setting and benefiting from what's what they're hearing and what they're supposed to be listening to because they don't know how to pull that message together. I was just thinking about what you were saying. I mean, the environment is pretty challenging. You have a classroom full of kids and you have kids who are you know, acting up or speaking out and other ones who are kind of sitting and you're, you're giving these mixed messages, right? Because you're trying to keep everybody, you're trying to calm one kid down while you're trying to hold the attention of the whole class or whatever. What can support teachers to be able to not give the mixed messages under those circumstances? Well, I worked with several of my teachers and we decided to kind of do some test pilots and see what would work and what wouldn't work. And we found in small groups, it's much easier to do some of these things. But once you teach the kids what your signals are, so to speak, within the smaller groups, then they also apply it in the classroom. So what we started out by doing was working with the teacher and myself. And then we introduced a small group of kids and said, okay, you have three kids here. So somebody is talking out, somebody's acting out, and you need to reinforce them but still keep everybody else's attention. We found that subtle things with kids work. So if you develop a signal, like the teacher might touch the student's shoulder or put her hand on their desk or right in front of them in a small group to let them know to give her her attention and pay attention to what she was saying, little signals like that helped. And explaining to the students too that, okay, we're going to, I'm going to show you the signals that we're using, and we're going to learn them together. So you know when I do this, even if my eyes are on the board because I'm pointing out something to you, or if I'm looking at Sam, but I'm telling you something, but if I'm touching your desk, that means the message is for you. So that she was educating the kids about how signals could be diverse and how that message could still apply. And by practicing with small groups of kids to start and then carrying the same message over into the classroom, we found that there was better success in the classroom with students being attentive. It also helped her as the teacher identify more readily students that while they may not 
appear to be listening, the kid who's they've got his head under his desk rather than sitting up straight or hanging half off of his chair, that by asking pertinent questions, getting the student to repeat back in their own words what they heard or what they understood, because the crucial point being there in their own words helped her identify whether or not the student was actually listening to her. So then it put her in a position where she was able to say, you know what, as long as he is responding to my questions, he's following directions, and he's not bothering any other student around him, if he's hanging half off his chair, that's okay. So it was one less thing for her to have to focus on, but it narrowed her focus of information and what was an amazingly positive effect by freeing up some of these more fidgety students to fidget without repercussions of, nope, you have to sit down, sit up straight, knock it off, their success in what they were learning increased and their overall disruptiveness to the class decreased because they could comfortably fidget without feeling that pressure of having to be totally still. And somehow with children, when they're a very fidgety group, if they have that extra energy, that if they're allowed to express it, they can listen better. But if they're putting all their focus on being still and containing themselves, that part of the message of what they need to listen to gets lost to them because of where their attention and focus is. Yeah, that's really important to pay attention to. They're putting so much energy in that and trying to concentrate or trying not to move that they're missing out on what the, what the teacher is teaching, right? And the teacher, because they were had this assumption that fidgeting means they're not learning or not understanding this assumption and worrying about that, that also took a lot of energy with, you know, in the teacher's head space or the energy space. So then being able to recognize, oh, wait, <laughs> I can kind of let that go and to create space for this other student or for these students who are really not understanding you're still giving all the students attention. It's just you're shifting how the attention is given in a way that they can respond to it. It allowed the teacher to develop while we had, we had a set, you know, set of signals, so to speak, like touching your desk, touching your shoulder, even pointing to her face when she needed attention for people. So they learned to watch for what her hand was doing, for where the attention and focus should be. It also allowed her to creatively add other subtle signals for kids who needed more input. So she learned which kids she might actually need to go walk over while she's talking and stand next to their desk for a moment or two to make sure they're attending before she moved on. So it didn't necessarily take up more energy or create a disruption so much as it was just an additional signal for that specific student to help them focus where they needed to be listening and what they needed to be paying attention to. So the class as a whole became more cohesive. And what we found after three or four months is the kids started using similar behaviors with their friends in the classroom if they needed their attention. They would take a moment and touch their desk rather than yelling at them. They would wait to make eye contact instead of running into or jumping into a conversation and then getting upset because they weren't heard. So they started applying some of the strategies they were seeing her use 
And that also helped her classroom become more organized and had a better flow for information and a more cohesive communication group was occurring. She's probably like, why didn't I do this before? (laughs) We actually had that conversation, her and her team, because they work as like pods of all the first grade teachers, that type of thing. And we had a conversation about it. And what the teachers came up with themselves is when they're taught about how to get kids to listen. Typically in our district, a lot of them use what's called the slant approach. You sit up, you lean in, you get that attention that way. And that's what they tell the kids to do. So you got to have your upright posture, your hands on your desk, your eyes on the teacher. And while that works well for adults to get them to initially focus, even adults that doesn't work with well long-term, but for kids, they could give you that posture and still not be listening. Right. Exactly. So it's pretend, that's where we learned the pretend listening. Yes. And in educational classrooms, they, when they're teaching teachers, they really don't take it much beyond that. And we also learned that there's a difference. When I talk about listening, to me, listening means you are demonstrating comprehension and understanding of what's said. For teachers, we had to define what the difference was between general comprehension and listening comprehension was. Because many of our testing methods for students here in the U.S. require that when they're tested on something to demonstrate comprehension, that they are literally repeating back very close to word for word what was heard or what the content was in something. So it's being able to take, if I heard you say the cat has brown eyes, four paws, and a striped tail, and the teacher said, okay, well, what does the cat have? You would be able to say it has brown eyes, four paws, and a striped tail. And the teacher would call that comprehension. But if you ask the student, well, what does the cat look like? And the student went on to say, well, he's round and he's fluffy. And yeah, he has brown eyes. And oh, man, his tail looks really cool. The teachers wouldn't register that as comprehension because it wasn't using specifically the words that were part of the story. And I worked with the teachers to show them that actually the student who's giving you all this additional information about this cat is really showing you better listening comprehension because they were able to take what they heard and integrate it into information that was important to them. So that was part of it too, is getting them to look at comprehension and listening comprehension in different ways than what they were used to doing. Which when you think about it, the listening comprehension is the second piece, just so that I get my language clear. Like when they describe the cat, the fluffy tail and this really cool tail, that's listening comprehension. Right. When I hear you describe that, I think about skills needed later on when working with teams, you know, or, or problem solving or whatever, that this listening comprehension is actually much more important because you can repeat words back does not mean you're able to that you really understand what the person's saying or that you can apply it to a practical situation. So that really is the heart of the matter. And sometimes in our testing and evaluation and our even working with kids, even as parents, we 
have the belief that if they can tell us exactly what we said, then that means they understood what we said. And that is not necessarily the case. And that's, that's one of the things adults need to understand is instead of asking them to repeat back what the direction was specifically, if you can get them to repeat back what it is they're actually going to do as how it relates to the direction or the situation, you will actually have a better understanding of how much they listened and what their comprehension was. It's how they're going to apply it. And if they're just giving you words, but they don't understand the meaning of those words, or they haven't listened to the meaning of the whole message, they're not going to get it right. I love that. Just to have this. So what are you going to do with what you heard? You know, so what did you understand? And what what do you want to do with it? (laughs) With this, that, and the other? That's a huge, that question can be magic. One of my little girls that I worked with in one of the classrooms, the teacher that she and I, Miss O'Hearn, she and I worked on this project together. And in her classroom, after we showed some of the rules and worked through things with kids and we're talking about it, she asked the kids to draw a picture of or write out what they thought rules meant and what they were like for the classroom. And she gave the kids the option of either drawing a picture or writing out words, depending on what their skill level was, assuming she would get pictures of kids sitting in their desk, kids talking to each other, kids, you know, playing together quietly or words that reflected those stories. Well, one of her little girls put up her picture to show her, and she was very proud of her picture. And she handed it to Miss O'Hearn, and she said, this is what your rules look like to me in my head. And it was a big box filled with squiggly lines. And when Miss O'Hearn asked the student, it's like, well, how come my rules look like squiggly lines? And she got real quiet, and she says, because... Every rule has a change and every rule can be changed based on what somebody's doing. And I don't always understand how that works. So it's all squiggly lines to me because I just don't understand. And this is a young girl who had attention issues and struggled with how to focus, how to be aware, how to kind of be in that moment and really gain those listening skills. And it was so insightful for her to share that she knew she was missing some of the pieces. And so it made it all just squiggly lines for her. Wow. What a beautiful insight. And what a beautiful way for her to finally, even for herself, get clearer and be able to express herself in a way that maybe she could get help after. Well, what was nice is afterwards... The teacher started taking extra time with her and showing her, okay, yes, this rule play applies this way, but when this happens, here's the change. So little by little, and it, it was a little time intensive, but this student, you know, was getting extra support anyway. So we got all her support personnel involved in the process too, of helping her explain to her the nuances, the changes, and what could impact what she was hearing, that within through the end of that school year and then into the beginning and next, we saw such a dramatic change in her that now we're talking almost two years later, she no longer needs all the extra support she was getting in the classroom. That's beautiful. Yeah. She's figured it out. Yeah. She's figured it out. And so it maybe takes a little bit of time in the beginning, but in the long run, it's worth it. Right. And just having a chance to be able to express that because you think about also the question how often do we ask that question? How do you understand these rules? Or, And for them to have the option 
how they describe what they understand through either written or drawing, and they can choose to take time to understand what they had put down after that, you know, to see where the needs were. Really nice. And what made it really nice is after we went through this process with the, the teachers in the first grade group of teachers, they also said that initially they felt very hesitant trying out the things I was suggesting because they thought it would take up way more of their time than what they had to give. And in a teacher's world, time is everything that they actually found by time we implemented everything and worked with it, that it actually gave them more time to spend with their kids and better quality time to spend with their kids. And then they can do what they really want to do. Yes. And they feel good about that. It was a positive thing for them in so many ways. And it was really gratifying, I think, for the kids too. And they developed much closer connections. So, you know, you're, you're telling some great stories and some great examples. And, you know, so far, you know, what are you learning, you know, about listening in children that could also help parents? What I've learned in the classroom that's really beneficial to parents is going back to your, your kiddo and asking them the question, how much of this did you, you know, tell me what you heard? What do you think I'm asking you to do? And giving the child the ability to kind of express themselves. A friend of mine who is a parent, she had, you know, her young kiddo who was coming up and he was diagnosed as being on the spectrum. So she had some special challenges there with him. And she and I talked about what we could do for listening because, you know, he clearly listened to things very differently. And I asked her, I says, well, when you're talking to him, are you really making sure you're giving him your full attention? And she's like, well, what does that mean, my full attention? And I says, are you telling him what to do while you're on your phone? Are you talking with him and engaging him in instructions or how you want him to do things while you're also cooking dinner? She's like, yeah, usually I'm doing those things because I have to get, you know, all those things done. And I asked her, I says, well, how about if you try and just take a moment and when you give him a direction, stop and ask him to you know, tell you what he thinks he's supposed to do or show you what he's supposed to do and then go back to what you're doing. And she found that over time, she was actually spending less time having to go make corrections, having to redirect, having to calm him down, having to give him extra support by taking those few seconds to be in the moment with him to make sure that he really understood what her message was because he was, she found that he was misinterpreting what she was saying because he might be paying attention to her body language related to the text she was responding to on the phone or while she might be using a calming tone of voice with him while she was talking to him, that her abrupt movements while she was preparing dinner because she was actually feeling frustrated. So it showed in her body, even though she controlled her voice and he was more aware of those physical movements than what she was saying with her voice. So for him, it was crucial, the cohesive message, her body, her voice, everything needed to be in the moment with him to give him his information. And then he was able to hear it and listen to it better and respond more appropriately. Parents are really good at, at telling kids what to do, telling kids how to be, telling kids information, but not necessarily checking in with the child to make sure that they've registered that information. 
coming at it from another angle as a therapist when work with birth degree kids. So you go into their home and you work with kids on their language. And, you know, a parent was really frustrated because her young kiddo wasn't talking. And I said, well, I, I can I come one afternoon? I just want to observe your family because I was seeing all the early indicators that he should have been talking, but I wanted to see why not. Because there's usually a why not if the child's not talking. So I came and I observed the family. And anytime you add in an observer, it does change dynamics. But as they got more comfortable, what became obvious is he wasn't using words because he didn't have to. Everything was being, you know, as soon as he made a slight noise, a drink would be provided, a toy would be provided, a snack would be provided. He had absolutely no need to use his words. And so I talked to the the mom about that and she's like, but what do you mean? I says, well, do you actually listen to what he asked for? She's like, what do you mean listen to what he asked for? I said, that's just it. He makes a noise and what do you do? She says, well, I give him a bottle. I said, yeah, but how do you know he actually wants the bottle? Or how do you know he actually wants a cup of juice? And she's like, well, I just decided that. I said, so sometimes his behavior is he's using his behavior to dictate what you're giving to him. So he doesn't have a need to use words. I said, so what I want you to do is tell him that in order for you to give him something, here's the word that goes with juice. Here's the word that goes with banana. Here's, you know, so you're matching it up. And when you want these things, you have to ask for it. And she's like, well, he won't do it. I says, he may not the first time, but I says, you're going to hold out and wait. You know, kids will, They'll use words when they're ready, or he'll go and get it and show it to you. And when he does, you're going to tell him, okay, use this word, but you're going to show him how you're listening to what he's showing you. And so she did this with him for a few times. And it was, to her, it felt like an overnight transition where all of a sudden he was talking up a storm. And what she found is that as she was giving him the words and permission to use the words, that he actually started listening to her when she was asking questions and giving her answers, listening to her when she was giving him directions so that he was following through on the directions instead of her physically saying, okay, well, we have to get in the car now and taking him outside and picking him up and setting him in the car. He would walk out to the car himself and climb in by himself. And she wasn't physically doing all of these things for him so much anymore because now he was listening to her and understood what her message was and he was gaining that independence. And it was just a subtle shift in how she used her communication skills with him and her language and how she listened to what his needs were. And it was almost like she was giving him permission to communicate and he just blossomed. Mm, that's beautiful too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how these subtle changes can make a huge difference. And the assumptions that we may have as parents that impact our behaviors towards our kids. And if we kind of take a step back from those assumptions and try some different ways, you know, or giving them a chance to take the steps forward, then that makes a big, a big difference. Well, it's hard. In today's world, we're also busy. We're rushing, we're running, we're doing, there's always six things going on at once. And in some ways, because we've kind of moved into this chaos to a degree, if you want to call it chaos, it's limited how we listen to ourselves, how we listen to our kids and how we impact each other. And if we step back and 
just take, it literally takes moments to listen to our kids and listen to ourselves. The chaos actually reduces and our kids understanding and our connection with them improves so dramatically. And then this perception that we don't have time, actually, we end up having more time. And like you said, the quality of time also is much better and we feel better all around. Mm -hmm. So let's say you deal with go away. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's dream a little bit. If you could impact how listening could be brought into schools more, if you could dream up how you'd like to see things, what would be your dream? Actually, my dream would be that we, just like we have, you know, you don't, using the word curriculum can be off-putting to many people, but just like we have curriculums for reading, writing, you know, integrating kids into scholastic works, we need to have a piece throughout our day for students where we help them focus on what listening really is. Even, and it can be done through fun things. One of the things that we did in the first grade classroom that I would love to see built off of, and we've done some work with it, but it's really hard to get that time to do it and get that okay to do it. Administration has to okay it, is working on those listening skills with kids. Like we would do listening scavenger hunts. And what those entailed is kids had to listen for sounds. They had to find when somebody was writing with a pencil. And they're like, but that doesn't make a sound. And I made everybody be really quiet. And I took a pencil and I wrote on the paper and they're like, it does make a sound. "Mm -hmm." And listening for, is there a bird outside of your window? Is somebody kicking their desk? Are you hearing, you know, the fans when they come on to circulate the air? And we came up with all kinds of things to do for them to find. And then we turned it around too and asked them to come up with a list of things that they thought we should be listening for. And, and the kids, it was fascinating because they said, well, you should be listening for when we go harumph. And it's like, what? And we're like, yeah. And we go, it's like, well, why do we need to listen for that? And we asked the question and they're like, because that means we don't understand something or we're frustrated. And So they asked us to listen for things that would actually bring our attention back to them. And it was fascinating from their perspective to see what they felt was important. They felt it was important if they were slamming their body into a chair. So one kid wrote, yeah, you have to listen for when I plop into my chair. Well, again, that was showing that, you know, when we asked about it, it was like, well, I, I don't know how to, what to do then. So I'm bouncing on my chair or scrunching papers, or they had all kinds of examples for things that were signals, if we paid attention to them, that they either didn't understand what was going on around them, or maybe they even needed just a change of activity because they were tired and were losing focus. Little things that as we paid more attention to them, again, we were able then to address them and it made them better students. And it actually, again, we grew that connection with the kids And we got better outcomes. It's like everything that happens is not because, you know, I don't know, they can't concentrate. It might be, it's all information. And if we pay to those, pay attention to those signals and that the signals that are happening, just to be aware that we may have a bias as an adult, that we're, we're understanding those signals according to an adult perspective, but actually what's being communicated is really different. And maybe it's fundamental. It's about you know, wanting some type of attention because there's an unmet need there. And that's a great way to sum it up 
because as adult, we've learned to control our bodies. We've learned to control our attention. We've learned to control our focus. But at the same time, I, I took what the kids presented to us in the classroom. And then over the next several staff meetings and PD trainings, professional development trainings that we had, I then started to pay attention to what adults were doing in those groups. And even though on the surface, the adults appeared to be listening better because they could regurgitate back what the speaker said. And, you know, you could see them taking notes and doing all the adult listening things that we all do. You also saw a wide variety of adults rumping, adults bouncing in their chairs, scrunching papers, doing all the things that the kids were doing that showed that they were really unsettled and missed a message. And I took that information and I went to my principal and I said, okay, on the next PD, when we do a training, because it was what I was doing with teachers on some special education information. He said, when I see the adults doing this, or when you see them doing this during the presentation, I want you to signal me because then I'm going to go to that person and ask them a more specific question. And she's like, well, why? I says, because I want to see if they actually were paying attention. And if they weren't, what did they miss? So we can fill it in. And so we worked together to do that. And what we found is those individuals who were harumping and squirming and scrunching paper and doing all of those things, when we went back to them and asked them specific questions about what had been presented, they didn't have that information. Or if they had the information, they had a really profound question about it because they didn't understand it. And in asking their question, better information came out. So when it comes down to it, that's the you're really tapping into something that's part of our humanness. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word or not. But I think humanness is it. It's, it's a characteristic we carry from childhood to adulthood. But as children, it's bigger because we haven't learned to contain it. We haven't learned to make it socially appropriate. We haven't learned how to demonstrate all these specific listening behaviors and attention behaviors that we need to have. We haven't. Well, we thought we needed to have the question is really, do we need it? (laughs) Yeah. Do we need it? That is a good question. And, but as an adult, they still come out when we're really frustrated. They're just subtler. They're not as over the top, but we're still having the same issues with listening just in different ways. And what compounded as an adult is then we take the information that we have it to what we've heard and come up with what we think it means. Well, since kids are just acquiring this information, they don't come up with their own interpretation of it. Typically, they just get lost. So we have to show them how to really communicate when they're not listening or when they don't understand things so we can give them the information so they become better listeners. So that as adults, they're not adding extra filters to things which then leads to misinformation and misunderstandings. Which is a huge problem, you know, also in the business world. And I'm wondering, like, if we were to shift how we teach listening in schools, like what you're describing, as well as helping teachers, not only would the school environment be much more productive in terms of learning, but also people would feel better, right? Both the students and the teachers. And then I wonder, you know, as these students who would learn this type of listening and how to, I would imagine eventually they would learn to be able to express 
for, you know, that they don't understand something over time because they recognize it's okay. You know, at first the teachers may have to pay attention to that and check in, but then they'll learn that it's okay to ask questions when I don't understand, or it's okay to get clear or whatever, because it makes it okay. That in of itself probably develops some amazing skills where then you'd be in a business meeting where it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be clear. It's okay to work together with someone else to understand what's happening or to, to come up with a solution. I'm not sure, you know, it would be interesting to see how that would develop students over time and what that would mean in their work later. That was a beautiful way to look at it because it does impact it. When you look at kids who aren't asking questions, if you get them alone and in a safe environment, they'll usually tell you they're not asking questions because they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to look like they don't know things and they don't want to stand out and be different from their crowd. And that actually does impact how we listen to things is where we feel comfort. And, but you see the same things in adults in business meetings. You, there's always in every meeting that one person who sits there never says a word, takes in everything that's said in the meeting, but then at the end of the meeting stomps out and really looks agitated and upset. And it's because there was something in that meeting they didn't understand, but they didn't have comfort zone or the awareness that they, it actually is a good thing to ask questions to get better clarification. And our systems in, in the classroom, all the way up through college and business meetings as adults, do not necessarily support an individual being strong enough to say, I don't understand what you're asking or I need more information about. It's not always condoned or supported for those type of interactions. If we're showing that we didn't understand something, people make wild leaps about, you know, well, how much were you actually listening to me? But childhood through adult, we need to look at the reality that as children, they don't have a lot of the background knowledge, so they may miss something because they don't have the pieces to fill in the blanks. But as adults, we may have pieces that fill in the blanks, but are they the right pieces? And if we're not encouraging people to ask questions for clarity for what we've heard and what we've listened to, we're never going to get a clean answer. And we're never going to develop really strong individuals who are supporting, you know, what they can to their best. Or even asking for understanding and, you know, what they're going to do with the information. <laughs> you know, I think that also would be really important to um, translate for later. So I was just thinking like what you're describing now would be great to build on those skills early on. And then that would have really big impact for later on. If you, you were to give families real quick, I'm going to interject. You can see in families where they encourage question asking because those kids, as they come up through the school system, they don't have any hesitation whatsoever in asking a teacher a question when they don't understand things. And it means too, that they have much better success in school because if they don't understand something, they recognize when they didn't hear it correctly, when the message doesn't make sense to them. So they're really listening and they ask for clarification. And that comes from where families are encouraging that kind of interaction with their kids. So that it develops that confidence. But unfortunately, there's fewer of them than not. 
And I'll also add, you know, with teachers, if a child asks you a question and you feel like they should have listened, you know, because I've had that happen to my son where he has certain teachers where he'll ask questions. He's one of these question askers and, you know, they'll explain things to him. But if they say, oh, if he asks a question where they feel like he wasn't listening and not paying attention and they'll say, well, you weren't listening, so I'm not going to answer you. That's the assumption there. But perhaps the way that they were just explaining wasn't clear enough or, you know, it wasn't. To me, when a teacher says you weren't listening, so I'm not going to restate it, that's the most horrifying statement in the world. But it happens. <laughs> I find it horrible too, but it happens. <laughs> it, it does happen. And I talked to my And it shuts them down from the asking time. questions in the future. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. I I, I'm relating to as a parent and as working with kids because to me, that's horrifying. And what I do when I work with my teachers, when I, and I've heard this happen, so I'll always go back to the teacher later and talk to them about it. And I usually flip it around from a language perspective and go, okay, so I'll bet they were listening to you, but there was a, something in there they didn't understand. So in the future, could we try doing this instead and giving them an example of how to rephrase their information? or how to ask a better question back to the student about what exactly they don't understand so that you're refining it and encouraging an interchange, which improves their listening skills. And that's been helpful, knock on wood, a little bit here when we can get teachers to pay attention to that. It's, and that's a hard one for teachers. Yeah, that's a hard one. So if you were to share one listening tool or tip that you think would be really helpful for our listeners to help a child listen, what would you say? And that sounds super simple, but it's not as simple as what it, it is. Because when you're listening to a child, you actually have to go back to that, that child and find out, is this what you really meant? And then it shows them that you're paying attention to them. But you also can, the skill you can use with them too is when you give them a direction or give them information, get them to retell it back to you in their own words. Because what's missing, then you can fill in the blanks and everybody will be more successful. Yeah, that's great. So you have a book <laughs> that you did on listening. Would you like to tell me a little bit more about your book? Well, this, the title of it is That's Not What I Said. I wrote that book based on interactions that I'm seeing more and more with kids. They say things and they think they know what it means or they think it applies in the situation and it's really not. And so they're misunderstood. So in this book, there's this little kid and he wants to go out and play in the muds in the and in the rain. And he asks his brother to go with him and his brother says, no, that's stupid. And the young the other child thinks that he's calling him stupid. Well, in today's day and age, stupid has actually become a word that isn't necessarily used the way it was. When people hear stupid, they assume you're being derogatory. And stupid actually means I don't want to do something or I don't like something or, you know, it's just not what I'm interested in. And so the book is all about showing how if we really listen to the whole message that we can have a better understanding because the two boys end up kind of fighting with each other over how this word was used. And I didn't realize how profound the impact of that word could be until a friend of mine was reading the story to her grandson and her, her son came in 
And as soon as he heard the word stupid used in the book, he took the book away and refused to let her finish reading it to him because he didn't want his child exposed to that kind of language. So later in the day, after she got her son, her grandson tucked away on his nap and she could talk to his dad privately, she sat down with him with the book and went through with him and showed him how it was really a lesson. It was an example of how how to use your words and what it could mean and how to pay attention to what was going on. And she was really shocked by his reaction, his initial reaction to what, how the story was presented. And then he came back later and reviewed it and was able to look at it and go, Oh my goodness, there is a message there that's important, but he had immediately reacted to just one word. Just like in the book. Just like in the book. Totally Just like in the book. <laughs> so. Wow. So, which right, that in of itself is like, see, that's exactly what we're trying to move past. Right. Yeah. Really, really important messages and how sometimes words can be triggers and to take time to really understand what's really, really meant instead of being triggered and making assumptions would be really, <laughs> is really important, an important lesson for, for not only the kids, but for us. Well, especially as we are becoming more culturally in tune with each other and everybody, because every culture, every, whether you're from the U.S., Ireland, France, Germany, wherever, everybody has slightly different cultural norms, but they also have language norms and what words mean vary from country to country. And if we're not listening to everything that goes around how a word is used, we can really misinterpret it and inadvertently offend or put somebody off that we never had that intention of doing. And it could be corrected just by paying attention and listening to the whole message and not just one snippet. Beautiful. What is um, one thing that you'd really love for listeners to take away with them? To look at the whole message and not a single part. And really, as much as possible, be attentive to the whole message and the whole person that you're communicating with, because that makes all the difference. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. Yes. And from your stories, from the teachers and from the parents that when they do that, not only do they, that does the magic happen but they have more time and space to enjoy the magic while it's happening. I am your host, Raquel Ark from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Evo Timan for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.